This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So please let yourself sit in a way that's comfortable and let yourself listen not so much to the words, but somehow to the spirit and to whatever can nourish you or be useful, touch you, um, and the rest just let it go by. I want to read you a poem, an Ellen Bass poem. At gate C-22 in the Portland airport, a man in a broadband leather hat kissed a woman arriving from Orange County. They kissed and kissed and kissed, long after the other passengers clicked the handles of their carry-ons and wheeled briskly toward short-term parking. The couple stood there, arms wrapped around each other, like she'd just staggered off the boat at Ellis Island, like she'd been released from ICU, snapped out of a coma, survived bone cancer, made it down from Annapurna in only the clothes she was wearing. Neither of them was young. His beard was gray. She carried a few extra pounds you could imagine her saying she had to lose. But they kissed lavish kisses, like the ocean in the morning, the way it gathers and swells, sucking on each rock under, swallowing it again and again. We were all watching. Passengers waited for the delayed flight to San Jose. The stewardess, the pilots, the aproned woman icing Cinnabons, the man selling sunglasses. We couldn't look away. We could all taste the kisses crushed in our mouths. But the best part was his face. When he drew back and looked at her, his smile soft with wonder, almost as though he were a mother still open from giving birth. As your must, mother must have looked at you, no matter what happened after, if she beat you or left you or you're lonely now. You once lay there, the vernix not yet wiped off, and someone gazed at you as if you were the first sunrise seen from Earth. The whole wing of the airport hushed, all of us trying to slip into that middle-aged woman's body, her plaid Bermuda shorts, sleeveless blouse, glasses, little gold hoop earrings, tilting our heads up.
And I wanted to start with a poem of love, um, because there's something in us that all longs for a, a deep connection with ourself, with the world around us, with life, with one another, and the freedom to express and to receive that. And we all know intuitively that it's possible, or that more presence, more connection, more compassion, more love is possible for us. And we celebrate it, of course, globally in the you know, Nobel laureates, the Nelson Mandela walking out of prison with that amazing magnanimity and graciousness of spirit after 27 years in Robben Island. But we also see it in all kinds of other ways, what's possible. Martina was a physician and the administrator of a medical school hospital. Her work often took her to the cafeteria where she got to know Annabelle, a Haitian woman who'd worked in the kitchen. Annabelle had worked there for 25 years and now in her 60s was supporting seven grandchildren. Petite and strong, Annabelle had lived through years of hardship and loss, yet each time Martina asked how she was doing, Annabelle would turn her face up with a bright smile and say not just okay or fine or even great, but wonderful. It was audacious and true. You could feel it in the drab cafeteria kitchen, endless hard work, a tough life, and wonderful. To Martina, Annabelle's voice became a bell of mindfulness, transforming the world. Whenever she felt frustrated or sorry for herself, she would smile like Annabelle and say to herself, wonderful. We know it, the Buddhist texts begin, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, of the awakened ones, so nobly born, remember your true nature. And sometimes when we walk in the mountains, or there at the birth of a child, or at that mysterious moment of death, that silent moment when the spirit leaves the body like a falling star so silently, mysteriously, or in a great cathedral at the edge of the Grand Canyon or making love or listening to extraordinary music. That sense of wonder opens up and we step outside of the small sense of self, what's called the body of fear in Buddhist psychology, the sense of separation, and touch something that's beyond birth and death, beyond the small story of our life. Not that the story of our life isn't of value, but it's held in the great wheeling of the galaxies and the turning of the seasons. And so the question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. Is there a way that we can find our place in this dance of birth and death and joy and sorrow and gain and loss and praise and blame with a wise and loving heart, like that poem that began, what the Buddha called the sure heart's release, a freedom wherever we are. Now, of course, it's a little paradoxical because even though the texts say you are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, which is true, it's wonderful to see you all here gathered again in this way. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi, Roshi put it this way. He said, you're perfect just the way you are and there's still room for improvement. And so that's our human 
paradox in some way. You have to honor your Buddha nature, your original nature, um, and also, as Ramdas would say, remember your social security number, right? You have to hold both of those. And one of the great teachings from Sue Neil, who was a um, Korean Zen master some centuries ago, um, talked about the path differently than you usually hear about it. He talked about sudden enlightenment and then gradual training, which is to say that you already have a taste of what's possible somehow in your life in the different ways that I mentioned and in a hundred other ways. You have an intuition, an inkling, a direct experience of something greater than yourself, of entering into silence and presence and stillness and love. And then there's the training to embody it, to live it, to make it really alive for you. Now, an interesting question that some of you may have been asking, or perhaps could have today, is if we have this original Buddha nature and original goodness, why is it so damn hard? And of course, when something's difficult on retreat or elsewhere, the best possible response is to become curious with mindfulness or with love. If you love somebody and something's hard, you become curious. What's going on? What does make it hard? And today, on the first day of the retreat, whether you're a new practitioner or whether you've done retreats, sometimes many before, what you start to see is that the systematic training of sitting and walking and sitting and walking, kind of putting them all together so you're really with yourself and paying attention as best you can to your breath and your steps and what's happening around it, is a magnification, an amplification of what's going on inside. And so there you are, stopping, not doing anything. We don't do much. You sit around all day and you take a little walk and you sit down again. It's not that hard, right? But then what you see amplified is the monkey mind, the body tension, you know, the power of the conditioning of the kind of thought streams that come. It's like you're stuck in Motel 6 late at night with the shopping channel on and you can't turn it off or whatever channel is stuck on in there, right? And it's hard to stay with. There's a really great YouTube video out of um, Dr. David Walsh's famous experiment about delayed gratification that many of you will have heard about, um, where they take um, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, and bring them into a room with a paper plate and a single marshmallow on it and say, um, you can eat the marshmallow now, or if you wait for a bit, I'll be back, and if you haven't eaten, I'll give you a second marshmallow, right? And um, when you watch the YouTube video, it's hysterical because the kids are like looking at it and smelling it and trying to taste a little bit of it. And like you can feel the, the longing so great in them and they roll it over and, you know, sometimes they take a little bite and put it back, to, you know. Um, and it turns out, of course, that in those studies that the children who had the capacity 
to not eat the marshmallow, to delay their gratification a little bit, was an enormous predictor of success in life. One of the, one of the kind of most accurate predictors of success in all different kinds of ways, artistic and, you know, love and all kinds of things, because it, it demonstrated that somehow they had learned, maybe with healthy environment, whatever it was, they had learned the capacity to actually stay with experience without being completely swept away by it. And that's more or less what you did today. Some of you I know ate the marshmallow, but that's all right. <laughs> but it's not easy because it's hard to bear your measure of tears, the pain in your body, the longings, the unbearable beauty of the world, sometimes even the joy is hard to bear. Um, but more than that, the, the things that are struggles or you know, difficulties that arise. And yet, it is so valuable. This is why mindfulness itself is such a radical act. One of the most radical things a human being can do because it allows us to step out of reactivity and out of identification with the experiences and to become the loving awareness, the witness of it. So this from Tamara Engel, a Dharma practitioner, written months before she died. My days are short, and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the joy and the ease it brought, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting and every fearful fantasy and every pain and ache I sat through and every itch I didn't scratch was a training for kindness, a training for the muscle for bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that carries me now as I face my death. And so it's marshmallow training, but, you know, on steroids or something like that. It's just learning the capacity as the Buddha that you are to be the loving awareness itself and not be so caught by all the waves of experience. And it doesn't mean that you can't taste them. You get two marshmallows later on, it turns out. All kinds of great things come. But it's this capacity for being present for this mysterious life in a way that's not so caught and reactive and small. And as you do practice this loving awareness, which is the synonym we'll use for mindfulness and loving kindness, gradually there comes an inner sense of freedom that grows amidst praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain and all the duality that makes up human incarnation. Now, you know, the 5,000 research papers and studies that have been done in the last decades in modern neuroscience reaffirm this in all different kinds of ways, the changes in the nervous system itself and in the development of these capacities that we have now measured. Um, But you can sense it in yourself. And here's the old instruction that describes it. So the Buddha was out walking, it says, early one morning with his alms bowl and approached an area being plowed in the spring when a very wealthy upper caste Indian, a Brahmin, was distributing food to all those who worked for him. When the Brahmin saw the Buddha coming for alms, he said, with a little bit of attitude, that's my parenthesis, O monk, 
I plow and sow, and having plowed and sown, I eat. Do you likewise plow and sow, and having done so, do you eat? He was more or less saying, you know, you're a mendicant. What good are you? Don't you do anything of value in the world? I mean, that's why my people eat, because they work. A little bit of a challenge, right? Some attitude. And the Buddha replies, I too, Brahman, plow and sow, and having done so, I eat. And the Brahman said, you claim to be a plowman, but I see no plow. Tell me, what kind of plowing is it that you do? And the Buddha replied, faith is the seed, and kindness the rain, or compassion, depends how you translate it. Clarity is the plow and yoke. Conscience is my guide. My own mind is the harness. Wakefulness is the plow blade and goad. Wise in action and speech, moderate in food, I use truth to weed and cultivate release. Wise effort is the great oxen drawing the plow steadily toward the sure heart's release, freedom without regret. This is how I plow, and it bears deathlessness as its fruit. For whoever plows in this way will become free of the entanglements of sorrow and distress. And the Brahmin said, Ah, let this venerable monk eat. You are indeed a plow. Somehow the Buddha had convinced him from this metaphor. (laughs) And called for food to be put into the Buddha's pole. And then a very interesting thing happened. The food, this milk rice or whatever was put into the Buddha's bowl, and it hissed and evaporated as if the bowl couldn't contain it. Now, these are all kind of metaphors, if you will, or symbols. Why did the bowl hiss? Any farmers in here? Come on. Politicians? Never mind. If you've ever felt a plow after it's gone through a long furrow, it's really hot. The steel, um, the steel heats up as it cuts the earth. And so the symbol of, of, the, of the fact that the water and the food hissed out of the bowl was really the symbol that this was, in fact, the, the plow for the Buddha of his, of his work for the Sure Heart's release. I just love the fact that they play with poetry and symbol at the same time. So this is, in a way, what we're doing. We are plowing or we are tending the garden of our own heart and our own being. We're planting seeds of faith. We're setting a direction. We're bringing our attention and our care to it and the wise effort as the oxen. And whether you're new or whether you're more experienced in practice, it's more or less the same thing. You can become more skilled at it, which is a wonderful thing. You do become more skilled. But I know talking with the old Ajans and Sayadaws and Lamas and Mamas and stuff, because I'm in the industry, you know, so I get to talk to people backstage. Um, They're all plowing still. They're all planting and tending their garden. And the ones that don't, problematic. We won't talk about that. But anyway, you know, and we just had a, a ceremony in here three days ago, um, uh, a memorial for Ruth Dennison, one of our senior teachers who died earlier this year. Um, She died at age 90, and she was certainly one of them, because even she broke her legs and her hip in her 80s four different times, was hospitalized and got out and could barely walk and wheelchair and walker, and she 
made herself walk again. She just used her practice. She said, oh, it's only pain, darling, I can do this, and got up and was extraordinary. I mean, even as she was getting ready to die, she said, this is my place of practice. I must practice here. So if you've been practicing for a while, um, good. Continue, carry on. Because this is the game, to water your life with kindness, to bring attention, to know that in the next moment this greater opening is possible for you too. And the Buddha uses the words apamada, which means to practice with care, and yoniso manasikara, to bring a wise attention to each thing, each moment, each experience. And this really opens the gateway to a free heart. Now it's done always one breath at a time, as Matthew said, or one step at a time. And I think of my teacher and friend and colleague Mahagosananda, who is the Gandhi of Cambodia, could tell so many stories about him, but um, he, we lived together in Forest Monastery in Thailand when the great Cambodian genocide happened, so he wasn't killed. He was one of the few senior monks that survived. All 19 members of his family were killed. Village temple burned. Two million people died. Um, and he went to work in the refugee camps. And while he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize many times, and while he was the representative at the United Nations for the peace talks, and while he spoke 15 languages and had a PhD from Nalanda University and kind of remarkable being, most of what he did with the years of his, the later years of his life was to say to the people who were refugees, you cannot go back to your village in the back of a truck, pickup truck or in a bus or the ways you might ordinarily go. Um, you have to reclaim your land and we'll do this by walking. And so he would lead long lines of hundreds of people with a bell and they would chant together. They'd move, walk through the forests and the jungles and skirt the minefields. Um, and with every step they would chant, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And he said, you have to reclaim your land with loving kindness of every step, and then when you come back to your village, it will really be yours again. So in a way, we are reclaiming our lives like this, breath by breath and moment by moment. But of course, as you do this, as you undertake this, obstacles arise. For the gardener or the farmer, there's weeds, there's insect, there's drought. For Gosananda, it was the Khmer Rouge who had come and at times threatened to kill him and threaten the other people. You know, there was uh, all kinds of obstacles, as you can imagine. But it's true in anything that's worthwhile and worthy. In starting a business or parenting or a love relationship. You start a business, you have this great idea but then maybe you don't have enough capital, or a key employee quits, or the interest rates rise, or the markets change, or your supplier gets bought up, or the competition gets stiffer. Every business has a series of obstacles. Every artist knows this in creating something. You know, and if you're a parent, first it's putting everything in their mouth, 
then it's hitting each other with blocks, you know, and you have to socialize the little delicious little monsters in some fashion or other, you know, and then it's falling off their bicycles and hurting themselves and sports and stuff. And then, oh my God, it's puberty, right? And it's, it's your teens and it's sexuality and driving a car, you know, and drugs and alcohol, you know, and then it's independence. And each one of those is something that you have to tend to. It's the same with a love relationship, you know, once you've fallen in love with someone, it's a fabulous thing. And then there's the time after. (laughs) Or with social change, you know, because the obstacles to social change are people's fear and their trauma and their rigidity and so forth. This is from James Baldwin where he writes, I imagine one of the reasons that people cling to their hate and prejudice so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And it's really a powerful description of the projection that we do in the world, because if you can't bear your own insecurity, and the truth is we are insecure as human beings, and we're vulnerable as human beings, no matter how exceptional people think America is, it's not. It's vulnerable. We are as humans, we are as a culture. Um, But if we can't acknowledge it and can't bear our own pain, then we project it on others, on used to be the communists. Maybe they're gonna come back in vogue, I don't know. Um, Or, you know, it's the gays and the lesbians, or maybe it's the, immigrants, or now it's the Muslims or something, it's sort of the enemy du jour, right? Somebody who's different because we can't actually tolerate our own experience of vulnerability and our own experience of our own humanity. We can't bear it. So there's something that we're doing for ourselves here, but also there's something that's profoundly political, because you can't separate them, of creating what it means to have a... mm, a steady and wise heart and presence as a human being. So all of these things have their obstacles, and you know it. You know you go out to do walking meditation. There you are lifting and placing each step. And then maybe it's too hot, I should go indoors, right? Or I'm a little tired, maybe I should lie down a little bit, or Maybe I should, as Wes says, go back to my room and look at my stuff for a little bit, you know, or because you're bored or you're restless or something like that. And what you want to do is acknowledge that. In fact, it's helpful to pause when you're walking, when some big energy wants to take you and do something else with you, and just acknowledge it. Oh, this is restlessness, or this is boredom, or this is desire, or whatever it is, to see it for what it is. And then pause and let it be there, let it sing its song for a bit, and then it settles down, and then again, you begin to walk. And you do it over and over again because there's no such thing as a one-walk dog. Basically, when you adopt the dog, here you are, you're walking, you know, it means you've got to walk it every day. Here, it's the same thing. You have to give yourself to it. Now, there are two different related and parallel tasks inwardly least two, but I'm going to name two important ones, that we are cultivating together and in tandem, if you will, as we do this retreat. 
The first is the task of concentration, samatha, steadying of the mind. And I remember when we were with our great elder Deepama, the um, woman who lived in Calcutta, who was one of the great yogis of India and a mentor to many of us. And somebody asked her, so what's in your mind? You know, she was this extraordinary, beautiful being. And she says, not very much. And we said, well, what is it? You know, thinking, is it like thoughts about things? She said, well, in my mind, there are three things. There's uh, concentration, peace, and love. What a nice mind, huh? (laughs) But it was interesting to me that concentration was one of those words that she used, or maybe it was steadiness, that her mind was really steady along with being peaceful and loving. And, you know, I'm talking to those of you who are experienced practitioners as well as those who are newer. There's some way in which we deepen in our capacity for steadiness. So one of the first tasks here, and it goes on through the retreat, is the ability to bring our attention to a more steady way. And we do this with the breath over and over again. We begin to rest our attention and the breath. At first you struggle, and where should I find it? Up to the nostrils and the back of the throat, the whole body, the belly, hand on your belly. In fact, it doesn't matter so much. What matters is that you're actually alive here feeling this breath somehow. And little by little, bringing the puppy back. Each time you return, the puppy sit and stay. Yes, the puppy's not terribly bright. We know this. But nevertheless, the puppy gradually begins to settle and learn if you do it, if you bring the puppy back. And you start to learn how to be present. I I remember a cartoon of these two dogs in some kennel. They were in the middle of some dog training session, and one dog turns to the other and says, the secret is learning to stay, right? And it's really what you're doing as you learn to steady your attention with the breath or with your steps as you walk. At the same time, the other task that you're developing is the power of mindfulness or loving awareness to become the witness of experience or the witnessing, because it turns out there isn't someone witness as a witness, but there's this capacity of presence or witness. To be able to notice experience, to receive it, to see it with clarity, without being caught by it, without being reaction to it. So that understanding grows, graciousness grows, love grows, all of those qualities. And as we go through the retreat, we'll be outlining the instructions, as many of you heard and have heard in other years, following the foundations of mindfulness through the body and the feelings and the mind and relationships to things. And so here you sit, you know, and the body. How many people have some aches today? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) You don't need to. What you're seeing actually is the nature of the body. I mean, you didn't do much. You just sat and walked a little but you see the tension that it carries because you've been running and busy, most of you anyway. And then when there's conflict or you know, stress or something, your jaw gets tight and your back gets tight. And you know where you hold it. And then you sit quietly, ah, oh, I'm just going to meditate. And all that stuff shows itself, right? Or you're just not used to sitting still. Although there are many cultures in the world where sitting still, indigenous cultures, is really an easy and gracious thing. But we have 
a culture of movement and speed and how shall I say it? We're also a bit of a comfort culture. We have about a 15 second attention span, the length of one advertisement. And um, if it's too cold, we turn up the heat. If it's too warm, we turn up the air conditioning. And we're not really trained to be able to stay with experience so well. So here you are, and the, your body does stuff that releases things or it's painful. The question is, how do you touch it? With fear? with resistance, with wishing something else, with uh, struggle? Or can you touch it with loving-kindness, with loving awareness and say, this is, this is my body, this is the nature of the body. Let me experience this with a gracious and spacious attention with kindness. Not to turn away from it, but also not to fight against it. And when you do, when the pain or the difficulties there, and you hold it the way you'd hold a crying child, You've changed their diaper and they're fed, so there's nothing you need to do. And the child is still crying. You just hold that child. After a while, the holding of your kind attention, the body starts to soften and release and open, and all kinds of deeper levels of things that are held start to come untangled in their own time. So not only are you learning concentration, but you're learning mindfulness that begins with your body, but it also then be begins to notice what is unfolding from the heart. The phrase I last, used last night of the unfinished business. You sit quietly, tending yourself here. And again, whether you're experienced or new, there will be in the past time um, things that aren't digested in you. Grief that you may have not had the time to feel. And then you sit quiet and you remember, oh, that loss. And the tears come. Sometimes it's the ocean of tears. Or longing that you haven't acknowledged. Or creativity that really wants to be expressed. Or even joy that you haven't let yourself feel. You know, or maybe it's um, your loneliness. And the poet Hafez says, don't surrender your loneliness, oops, don't surrender your loneliness too quickly. Let it cut more deeply, let it season you as few ingredients can. So there's loneliness and you let yourself know it with mindfulness instead of, if you, if you can't stand your loneliness or your boredom, do you know what you do? Open the refrigerator, right? Go online, anything, because you can't be with yourself. Here, the art is actually to be with yourself to stay. Or your mind. And the cartoon I like to talk about from the New Yorker that shows the car crossing the vast Utah desert with the roadside billboard that reads, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? <laughs> it's a little bit like a meditation retreat. Um, and so what do you do when you're bored or you're restless? If not, I mean, there's no refrigerator to open at the moment, you know, or if you don't go on, and hopefully you're not. Um, and you can begin to acknowledge it. And you see the boredom or the restless, or the, or the kinds of thoughts, the planning thoughts, you know, or the memory thoughts. And often the thing about thoughts is that um, 
about 90% of the thoughts that you'll notice coming through here, and thoughts are useful, thoughts are a good servant, they're not a great master, but they're a good servant. 90% of the thoughts that you notice are reruns. They're the same thoughts you had yesterday and the day before. They're not like teaching you a lot new or something like that. Have you noticed that? They're repetitive patterns. And so what do you do? Well, it turns out that the very emotions that arise and the very thought patterns and the very sensations and the things that happen within you become the place of your liberation. The obstacles themselves are not something to get rid of. Where is the perfect place to find freedom in this human life? Where you are. A poem from a seven-year-old poet. I want to tell the fish, eat only the bait, not the hook. When you eat the bait, start from its edge and slowly gnaw bit by bit, never ever gobble it in one go. This is his meditation instructions for desire or whatever it is that comes. And so in this very place, this is the place to steady the mind, concentrate, steady, and to open the heart and learn to experience as the Buddha did in his night of enlightenment, at least in the myth or the story with all the attacks from Mara and so forth, learn to experience that freedom that is your birthright. As the bee gathers nectar and perfume from the flower without marring its beauty, so let the wise one wander through the world bringing harm to none and blessing to all. Or like a garland woven from a heap of flowers, Fashion your life as a string of good deeds. These are, again, the kind of um, nature metaphors that the Buddha used a lot in teaching, tending the garden, living, walking through life, bringing blessing rather than harm. As the farmer channels water to their land, the wise direct their heart and mind. And so you begin to direct your attention. And in doing so, you change yourself in this really beautiful way. Now, it's important to understand that while mindfulness is not about striving, because you kind of get tangled, I'm going to get really mindful. I'm going to catch every thought and every breath and so forth. It won't last very long before you'll be really both tired and exhausted and angry and upset with yourself. Because mindfulness isn't about grasping or striving, nor is it to make it work in some special way. All right, I want the beautiful house and garden type garden, you know, on the perfect spring afternoon with a good photographer who's got it from exactly the right angle with the right light, you know. Um, They don't show the compost heap. And they don't show the hours of, you know, people working in that garden. And they actually don't show what it looks like the week after when they took a week off and so forth. It's not about making an ideal of yourself. Instead, it's to tend what's present with loving awareness. 
And this takes a constancy or a dedication to really stay with it, to sit, to walk, to sit, to walk, not to take many breaks, not because breaks aren't okay once in a while, but really to let yourself stay with where you are and let it open, give it space to whatever it is. Constancy and respect. Remember the story of George Shaler and the, the gorillas that he could enter what seemed to be difficult or dangerous territory by offering a sense of respect. And so when difficulties come with mindfulness and loving awareness, anxiety or fear arises, and you can name it. We'll talk about this more. Fear, fear. Or you feel a struggle, you name struggle, struggle. You know, or sadness and grief come, tears, tears, sad, sad. Or you feel like you're restless and you just can't stand it. Restless, restless. I can't stand this and stand this. I hate this. Hating, hating. You know, I wish it would go away. Wishing, wishing. But now I'm actually getting kind of mindful of this. Oh, pride, pride. You know. <laughs> and you just notice it. And I always say, what happens if it gets so strong that you can't bear it? Restless. I'm just going to just explode from restlessness. Then say to yourself, all right. I'll be the first person to die of restlessness at Spirit Rock in 2015. Take me. Surrender. All right. I will die of restlessness. You know, or I'll die of, you know, boredom or whatever it is. Let me be a person who's died of boredom. And the minute you make that move inside, and it's not just the <clears throat> not just the new students, but you know, you'll come up against this, those of you who are more experienced practitioners, there'll be something that waits for you. It's wait, it's waited a long time and it will come. And then you say, all right, take me. And the minute you do, it gets easier because most of the problem is actually the resistance to the experience. So the difficulties become transformed as you practice. And there's a, a beautiful account of Professor Alan Chadwick, who was at UC Santa Cruz, and I think was the first person to create an organic and biodynamic garden and a whole department based on that in the University of California um, system, educational system, back in the 70s when it was just, you know, a beginning of the American movement of it. And he couldn't get any land for him and his students to work on. And finally he was given this old lot with um, junk cars, tires, uh, all kinds of crap thrown in it, really a terrible place. And someone said, you can't grow anything there. And he took his 40 students down and they spent a good part of the semester clearing it all first and then amending the soil and bringing in worms and bringing in manure and bringing in and working it into the soil and then planting good seeds and watering and tending and weeding. And they made an extraordinary garden of this place that people said, not that that soil's dead, nothing will grow there. We've been taught to judge. This is no good. This is unworkable to be judgmental or discouraged or, or even to feel a kind of shame. I can't do this. It's too hard. I'm not one of those people, you know. Um, those people who look like they're really good around you. They do look good, don't they? Appearances can be deceiving. So this is from a Hawaiian um, 
elder, she says, one of the processes I use to help people talk to each other I call building the beloved community, which is Martin Luther King's phrase, I believe. There's an exercise that requires people to tell three stories. The first is the story of all your names, the second, the story of your community, and the third story I ask to tell is the story of your gift. One time I did this process with a group in our local high school. We ran around the circle <clears throat> and got to this young man, Kele, and he told the story of his names and the story of his community well, but when it came time to tell the story of his gift, he said, what, miss? What kind of think, gift you think I get, eh? I stay in this special ed class and I get hard time reading. I cannot do math. And why you make me shame for ask that kind of question? What kind of gift you think I have? What, you, what kind of gift you think to be here as special ed? Kaylee just shut down and shut up, and I felt really ashamed. In all the time I've done this, I've never, never tried to shame anyone. Two weeks later, I'm in our local grocery store, and I see him down one of those aisles, and I see his back, and I'm going down there with my cart, and I think, nope, I'm not going to go there, and I start to back up and turn the other way. And then he turns around and sees me and throws his arms open, and he says, Auntie, I've been thinking about you, you know. Two weeks I've been thinking, what my gift, what my gift? I say, okay, brother, what your gift? He says, you know, I've been thinking and thinking. I cannot do that math stuff and I cannot read so good. But auntie, when I stay in the ocean, when I stay in the ocean, I can call the fish. And the fishy come every time. And every time I can put food on my family table, every time. And sometimes when I stay in the ocean and shark, he come and he look at me and I look at him and I tell him, Uncle, I'm not going to take plenty fish. I just take one, two fish just for my family. All the rest I leave for you. And so the shark, he say, oh, you cool, brother. <laughs> and I tell the shark, Uncle, you cool. And the shark, he go his way and I go mine. And I look at this boy, Kaylee, and I know what a genius he is. But in our society, the way our schools are run, he's rubbish. He's destroyed, not appreciated. So when I talk to his teacher and the principal, I ask them, what would his life have been if this curriculum were gift-based? If we were able to see the gift in each of our children, what would happen if our community was gift-based? If we could really understand what the gift of each person is and of ourselves. O nobly born, again, begin the Buddhist text. You who are the sons and the daughters of the awakened ones, um, you each have a gift. You each are born with the gift of attention. You're born with the gift of a good heart, of the capacity to love and grow in compassion and understanding. You have good seeds. What's important to remember as you plant and tend and water them is you can't force it. You can't pull the leaves on a flower open when you want to open. It has to sit there in the rain and the sunlight and so forth, and it opens in its own way. This is from a book entitled, If the Buddha Dated, Dated, you know, went out on dates, whatever. And um, only in America, really, come on. <laughs> but. It's in the chapters on flirting, the Buddhist flirtations. I wouldn't coax the plant if I were you. Such watchful nurturing may do it harm. 
Let the soil rest from so much digging and wait until it's dry before you water it. The leaf's inclined to find its own direction. Give it a chance to seek the sunlight for itself. Much growth is stunted by too careful prodding, too eager tenderness. The things we love we also have to learn to leave alone. And there's something in this about your dedication and your practice without trying to manipulate or make or expect. You just do it. And you let yourself feel this breath and this step and what's arising now. And you trust somehow that you are planting and watering and tending the seeds of Dharma in yourself. Prison Garden Project, if Kathy Sneed has shown what blessings can emerge when we acknowledge our interdependence with one another and plant beautiful seeds. In the 1980s, out of concern for the soul death of local men stunted by imprisonment, and don't even want to get started on our cruel and crazy mad prison system, she began a project to allow each member of the San Francisco County Jail, city and county jail, which is a very big one, to join her in growing vegetables in a garden plot behind one of the prison buildings. Through fundraising, she was able to offer seedlings, mulch, fertilizer, and simple garden tools. To be able to grow a garden with their own hands, to be responsible for its blossoming, to overcome insects and drought, brought out the best in these thrown away people. It awakened a connection to and caring for something outside of themselves. Kathy tells about one macho giant saying, don't step on my babies when she was taking them around the the garden. The prison warden was amazed by the change. The gardens became so important to those who cared for these patches that their lives began to revolve around them. You can feel it, the blessing to bring life back into life. In fact, when the time came for these men to be released from prison, some purposefully recommitted petty crimes or violated their parole so they could get back to their garden. That led Kathy to the inevitable next step, a garden project for ex-prisoners, thank you, and the community gardens for the disenfranchised in Bay Area communities. And the garden project itself became a kind of garden, one whose harvest was people. Being with the opportunity to plant created a community of people with increased care and concern for this earth and for one another. Now it's tough during retreat because you don't have your devices. There's no GPS. There's no Google Maps. So you can't say, all right, how am I doing? You know, I'm headed to Nirvana and um, 20% of the way, right? And then whoever it is, Siri says, turn right and do your walking or whatever it is. You get those instructions. You're not getting that. It's like being on a boat in the ocean and you look around and the ocean is round. It's not really round, but from the boat it looks that way, doesn't it? You can't tell because you can't see the shore. And so you have your plans and your goals and your creativity and all the different things that will come up with, within you about why you're here and what you hope will happen and 
all of your imaginings. And one of the favorite stories people have is, how am I doing? If only I had a GPS, if only I could tell. I'm not doing as well as yesterday. This sitting was good, that one was not good. This walking, I'm not sure. You know, maybe I need to be kinder to myself and take a break and just give it up for a while. Oh no, maybe I should try harder. I'll stay up tonight really late. And you go swing back and forth between self-criticism, criticism and judgment and praise and blame and <clears throat> analyzing what's right and wrong. And what you need to do with all that is guess what? Just be mindful of it and say, oh, that's the mind trying to hold on and figure out how it's going. The mind can't do it because you're going into a realm that's beyond the thinking mind, into a realm outside of time. And I wouldn't put too much stock in your thoughts. They are useful. I mean, they're very creative and wonderful. But especially on retreat, one of my <clears throat> favorite accounts was a woman who left a retreat in Joshua Tree that we've had now for 38 years down there. And she went to fly out of Palm Springs <clears throat> back to Chicago or wherever she was from. And um, on the way to the gate, she got a bag of chocolate chip cookies, stuffed them in her bag. And she went to the gate, sat down. The plane was late. She was sitting there with a little tray table, as there is sometimes after three or four chairs. There'll be a little place to put things and then more chairs. And the guy who sat down in the other chair opened the bag of cookies and took one out. And she was like astonished, right? I bought these cookies. Who does he think he is? He saw her look with that astonishment and he tilted it to her like, would you like one too? Like, here's one of your cookies, okay. So she took one thinking, okay, what's going on here? And then he ate another one. He said, here, you have another one. And they ate cookies for a while. And she thought, all right, this is really wrong and this is really weird. But they got down to near the end of it. He said, you want the last cookie? Okay, so... Anyway, she got on the plane, got settled in her seat, put her things up in her bag under her seat. And as she put her bag under her seat, she opened her bag, and she saw her bag of cookies was still inside there, unopened. And that what she thought he had been eating of her bag was actually his bag of cookies, and that she was the one that was taking them. We have all these stories about what's going on. Um, they're usually not terribly accurate. <laughs> so don't listen to them, just notice them with mindfulness and loving awareness. Thank you for your opinion, the judging mind, the shameful mind, the storytelling mind. Oh, thank you for that story, I appreciate it. And now another breath. And what happens if you tend the garden in this way is that in its own season, beautiful things grow. I love the story from Tupton Jimpa um, a friend who's also the translator for the Dalai Lama, who said that one of the physicians who'd come to his training in compassion and mindfulness was a kind of late middle aged, burned out, a little bit bitter about what had happened in medicine and tired of, you know, all the struggle with the insurance companies and the speed and the demands and so forth. And um, he did what you're doing for a number of weeks. And he went back in his office and, you know, 
one day and one of his older women patients came in and said, I don't understand, doctor. What's happened to you? You seem so different. Are you in love or something? And what he had done was just practice loving awareness and compassion for eight weeks. And he said it completely changed or renewed his practice. You are the Buddha taking your seat under your tree of enlightenment. You are planting your seeds of faith and loving awareness and steadiness in this mystery of human life. Um, and it's a noble and difficult at times and really wonderful thing to do because it's an invitation to free your heart. And it will bless you and bless all you touch. <laughs>